Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Are you or someone you love trying to expand their family? 10 to 15% of all couples in the United States are infertile. However, these days there are so many options to consider if you're trying to conceive. We have Dr. John Fratarelli from the Fertility Institute of Hawaii here in the studio. We're going to talk about the top causes of infertility and what can be done about it. It's certainly a lot more than just IVF. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu or toll free from the neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Happy President's Day. Welcome to the show, Dr. John. Well, thank you for having me. It's a wonderful visit. I'm glad to have you here. Now, we were talking earlier just right before the show started, and I'm kind of struck. You know, there's an article that just came out today. The number of test tube babies born in the U.S. hits a record percentage. This came out by Reuters, and it talked about the fact that the annual report from the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, that's a big mouthful, but it's a group of medical professionals that basically took a look and said, you know, we're seeing more and more babies being born using some additional treatments, some advanced reproductive technology, shall we call it. Who are the people who generally need to consider seeing an infertility specialist? This isn't necessarily everybody, but there are some particular individuals who might benefit from this. In general, who are your clientele? Well, I think that in general, anyone who's having trouble getting pregnant or thinks that they're having trouble getting pregnant, a lot of patients um, are trying but not having success. And they may realize after one or two months that there's a problem. Other patients may realize one or two years later that there's a problem. But in general, if, if someone knows that they specifically have a problem, they're menstruating irregularly, they have a history of infertility in the past um, or, or a history of trying to get pregnant in the past without success, uh, then they definitely need to be seeking advice. Now, you've been doing this for 20 years now, so you've got thousands of, of babies, I'm sure, out there thanks to your efforts. We're not talking ages here. You know, although there are some age issues in general, women who want to get pregnant when they're older or those who might not think they have a fertility aspect when they're younger. But generally, the issue is if you're trying and you're not successful. If you're under the age of 35, should you consider trying for a certain period of time or is there any kind of time limit on it? Well, the definition of infertility is six months of trying without success. And so for young patients, definitely they should be getting pregnant within a few months. Most, most patients, if they're fertile, if they're having intercourse and everything's working appropriately, they're going to get pregnant fairly quickly and fairly rapidly. And so if you've gone six months without having success, that meets the definition, and that should require you to see somebody. And when we talk about see somebody, how would they go about doing so? Do they refer themselves to your office, Fertility Institute? Do they talk to their gynecologist first, their internist first? What do they need to do before they embark on treatment options? Well, it really depends. A lot of patients will see their gynecologist if they can get, if they can get in in time to see them. A lot of patients have, have been seeing their gynecologist and have been bringing this up, and their gynecologist will then refer them to us. We do have a lot of patients that self-refer after they've been, because they may not have a gynecologist, uh, but, so they can really do any of those. So really, there's a lot of different options. Correct. Now, you know, years ago when I was in medical school, years and years ago, don't want to admit how many. But, you know, when we were, when we were treating individuals there in, in medical school and doing OBGYN, the obstetrics gynecology rotation, 
we would hear a little bit about fertility, but it really wasn't yet mainstream. It seems like now everybody hears infertility and they go right to in vitro fertilization, but there's a whole bunch of other steps. Walk us through the process. If somebody came in to see you today, and good for you, you're working today. I'm lucky enough to say I had a holiday. But if somebody came in to see you today, what would be the first step? How do you go about helping someone to discover why they might have fertility issues? Well, the first step is a consultation uh, and just a history and physical evaluation uh, and discussing with the couple what they've been doing, uh, what efforts they've, they've made, if they've done any tests in the past that might lead us to a specific diagnosis. The reality is most of our patients come in and, and they haven't really done anything, anything other than trying on, on their own at home. So then in the, we have to run the gamut of testing. For the male, it includes a semen analysis. And for the female, it really requires uh, a load of tests. So it requires us to look at her hormone levels at different times of the menstrual cycle, uh, an ultrasound so that we can look at the ovaries in the uterus, uh, a test called a hysterosalpingogram that looks at the fallopian tubes to make sure that the fallopian tubes are open. Uh, and then once we have all of those tests, we, we s- revisit with the patients and go over their uh, findings and their diagnoses to determine what treatments they need. Now, if somebody decides, okay, so so they're coming to see you, they meet the criteria, they find out that it's not a sperm issue, they find out that it might be um, an ovulation issue, when are women most fertile? As they get older, they're going to have some issues. Is there an age at which it's really just not generally going to happen on your own? Well, every woman's an individual. The reality is uh, we as humans were built to reproduce in our late teens and early 20s. And when you look at the national data, fertility starts to decline at the age of 24 for most women. It declines very, very slowly up until a patient gets to about the age of 35 or so. And then it drops, up, drops off a little bit more precipitously. Once patients reach the age of 38 to 40, fertility really starts to wane fairly rapidly. Uh, so, you know, the older the patient is, the, the harder it is to get pregnant. And typically, the more aggressive they need to be with their treatments. So now, if it's kind of interesting because when you talk about teens and 20s, these days, when we hear about young women getting pregnant in high school and in their early 20s, we think wow, they've gotten pregnant way too early. They haven't yet lived their life yet. yet. But actually, what you're saying is that's when the body is designed to actually get pregnant and have kids. Correct. You know, as, uh, you know women were born with all the eggs they were gonna, ever going to have. And actually, before they were born, they lost about 80% of the eggs that they, that they had uh, in utero. When they go through puberty, um, they're left with only about 10% of the eggs that they initially had before they were born. And unlike men who are making sperm constantly until they die, women are left with just a very small subset of eggs once they start puberty in order to reproduce. And so really, statistically, what you're looking at is it's amazing there are as many pregnancies as there are when you look at the stats. Okay. So now, how common is infertility? You know, some of the statistics show about 1 in 10, 1 in 12 couples have troubles. Is that about right? That's about right. It, it may be a, it may be under underreported. It, it may be as high as twenty percent uh, if you really look at subfertility and uh, people that, that are not getting the diagnosis that should. So in most places, most fertility specialists would say it's somewhere between one out of six to one out of seven couples, which takes it up to about fifteen percent. So in that sort of a scenario, the older you are, you're probably going to be more likely to have infertility issues. 
But young people can have this as well. There are other conditions. And and what are some of those that women could have in particular? And then we'll talk about some issues that men could have that would make them have issues with reproduction. Well, a lot of times it's just a hormonal issue. Patients may not be ovulating appropriately, and that might be a hormonal issue. There's a diagnosis called polycystic ovarian syndrome, where patients have a lot of follicles on their ovaries. It's actually a misnomer. It's not polycystic ovaries. It's polyfollicular ovaries. So lots of follicles on their ovaries. And so they're not ovulating, and they're not releasing an egg every month, and that, that prohibits them from getting pregnant. Women can also have tubal problems, and they can have tubal blockage, and that prevents the egg and the sperm from uniting and, and getting pregnant. Uh, they can also have uterine issues that will prevent an early embryo from implanting or cause miscarriages for patients. Now, when you mentioned the tubal issues, previous history of STDs, that can be a risk? Correct. So if you've had sexually transmitted diseases, or we should call it sexually transmitted infections, I think the CDC's latest term is STIs. And uh, so if you've had any of those infections, not having them treated in a timely fashion could be a risk. Correct. Or even having them treated. Uh, And so that's part of the history and physical examination when we're talking to a patient. We ask them about their history of STIs and if they were treated and how long ago they were and how severe the infection was. Um, And then that's why we also do the hysterosalpingogram or HSG to confirm that the tubes are patent or open. And what are some of the problems? Now, these could happen at women at any age, really. Correct. So you could be in your 20s and you could have this problem. You could be in your 30s. You could be in your 40s and you could have this problem. So really, age doesn't necessarily determine if STIs or, or other sorts of risk factors are present. If you're in your late 20s and you want to get pregnant and you can't after a, a year or so, a year and a half, then, then you could have some issues. Correct. Better get them checked out when you're younger? Yes, ma'am. All right. So now what about men? What are some of the things that could happen with men that would, I mean, we hear a lot about testosterone, low, low T syndrome. You see a lot of commercials in the news, and they're showing men who have low testosterone levels being treated. Now, usually they don't get tested until they're older, but could low levels of testosterone also be a risk for infertility for men? Not as much. You know, for, for, for men, it's very simple. It's, it's all about, you know, the quality and the quantity of the sperm. Uh, and for men who have low testosterone, a lot of times if they're getting testosterone supplements, while that testosterone supplement may help them feel better and help the symptoms that they're having, it actually can be detrimental to their sperm function and their sperm production. Uh, so when we're looking at men, we basically just do a sperm test to see how much sperm is present. Um, there's been a lot of testing on men, a lot of uh, research that's looked at are there, are there medications that we can give men to improve sperm function and sperm production? And really, very little to date has been found uh, that's positive in the way of helping men. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. John Fratarelli, and we're talking today about infertility. If you or someone you love has ever had problems getting pregnant when they wanted to, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, there's so many options out there for people who want to have children. There's adoption, there's there's other ways, the surrogacy, other sorts of options. Are there other things that if fertility is is really the issue, are there some ways in which families can increase their family members without necessarily undergoing fertility treatments? And do we overlook those too much? 
I'm not sure that we overlook them. I, th- I think that oftentimes my patients will have looked at them a lot uh, prior to coming to see me, and sometimes that will results in a delay of treatment. Uh, I think patients definitely look at uh, adoption uh, a lot. Um, and a lot of times our fertility patients, sometimes there's a, just a minor problem. And it's not a major issue that requires in vitro fertilization. Um, it might just be a minor tweaking of their hormones uh, that, are, that are out of balance that they require in order to help uh, achieve a pregnancy. Now, we talked a little bit about some of the steps, and IVF, in in vitro fertilization, may be sort of the last step. What are some of the other options that couples have? Well, if there's a sperm problem, we can do inseminations, also called artificial inseminations, uh, intrauterine inseminations, where we take the sperm and wash it and place it into the, the uterus. Um, by doing that, we're placing about 20 times more sperm into the uterus than gets into the uterus with intercourse. So if there's a minor sperm problem, hopefully you're overcoming that by Im- increasing the sheer number of moving sperm at the right place at the right time. Um, for women, we can give medications to help them ovulate better. That also improves the timing um, we can improve their timing so we can actually tell them when they're going to ovulate so that they can have intercourse at the appropriate time. Uh, there's also surgical procedures if there's a uterine problem, for instance. If there's something in the, inside the uterine cavity that's preventing a pregnancy or could contribute to a miscarriage, we can do a minor surgical procedure that typically doesn't require any incisions on the abdomen to fix. So there are definitely other options for patients. So there's really, there's a whole gamut. Correct. They could try a variety of different ways. And there's a lot more to fertility than just in vitro. Correct. Now, what about the question about multiple pregnancies? Because that always comes up. And people wonder, but what if I get pregnant and there's four babies? What should I do? I mean, and we hear in the news about women who are pregnant with multiple uh, children at the same time, and then that adds another burden for for them, but also for their body. Is that a common occurrence, or not really that much? It's not a common occurrence, and and quite frankly, you know, the medications that we use um, are a little tricky sometimes uh, for patients. You never quite know how a patient's going to respond to the medication, so you have to be very conservative and very cautious. The reality is most of the uh, newsworthy multiples that have been out there have not been from fertility specialists, but from other people just playing around with the medications that they shouldn't have been playing around with. Um, When you're taking oral medications, for instance, the the multiple rate is about 5 to 8%. With the injectable medications, um, the multiple rate goes up a little bit depending on how many follicles somebody has. But it really is dependent on how many follicles. So if you can limit the number of follicles or eggs somebody's producing to one or maybe two, the multiple risk is very, very low. And then with IVF, we have the ability to only place one embryo into the uterus. And if you're only placing one embryo, you know, the, the risk of twins is less than 1%. It's kind of as if it would happen normally Correct. without any artificial uh, reproductive technology like the IVF. Now, with the multiple pregnancies, you mentioned newsworthy. Well, that's interesting because mm-hmm. what's on the news is generally very somewhat shocking. And what makes the news tends to be the stuff that Nobody, uh, it doesn't, statistically doesn't happen that often, but you're right, in some cases it may. Now, you mentioned that you can even just place one embryo, one one uh, possible potential future child at a time. Are there women who have a lot of eggs that are just frozen that are, or a lot of embryos that are frozen? And what do they do then? 
Uh, yes, there are. We have, you know, in t- typically for a patient who goes through an IVF cycle, she may have one or two embryos placed into the uterus. And if she gets pregnant, then she may have two or three or more embryos frozen and cryopreserved that she can use in the future. Patients also have the ability to donate them uh, to other couples uh, in by way of a known adoption-type process or just a, an anonymous donation, um, or they can keep them stored. It's really up to them. There are also you know, options of donating them for research uh, as well. Does that happen very often? It doesn't. I find that most of my patients, if they have embryos uh, cryopreserved, will keep them stored for future use for themselves, or they donate them for other couples. And so there really isn't necessarily a huge storage of potential children in a freezer somewhere. This, that doesn't usually happen. Well, no, the, there are a lot of embryos that are, that are stored, but typically they are used. Um, for some reason or another. For some reason or another, yes. Are there any ethical considerations with that? Well, I think that you know we, we try to talk to the to the patients about the ethical issues that they may have, um, and we're very conscious of uh, any issues the patients may have um, at the stage that the embryos are are uh, cryopreserved. Um, these are you know these embryos are not able to uh, create um, a live. Uh, um, being without being implanted into a uterus. So they're really, at that point, just cells that we're preserving for future use, hopefully. Same thing as other ways that people preserve cells. Correct. Because at that point, technically, they could not survive. Correct. Well, that does take some of the ethical considerations, I guess, away when you look at it from that perspective. And certainly, that's the scientific way that I think people look at these sorts of situations. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. John Fratarelli. We are talking today about infertility and what does that mean to couples who might be going through this, but also what happens. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the long-term consequences, if any, of having fertility treatments done. They've been done now for at least 30 years. So we do have some research to suggest that there are they may be safe, and we do have enough data to look at what's gone on with some of these original couples and with some of the people who have had some of these treatments. When we come back, we're going to talk more about it. You can call us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Hawaii Island guitarist Chris Yetten returns to HPR's Atherton Studio February 22nd at 7.30 p.m. A protege of both Keola Beamer and John Keave, Chris brings his unique blend of slack key and fingerstyle guitar to HPR on Saturday, February 22nd. Call 955-8821 during business hours or purchase online at hprtickets.org. On the next Humankind. Once you get into this cycle that uh, your status depends more than anything else on the dollar sign, there's a tendency for human behavior to reinforce that. The toll that income inequality takes not just on the economy, but on how we relate to each other. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Aloha 
Hello. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Today in the studio, we are talking about infertility. And you might not think this is an issue, but you'd be surprised how many couples have troubles conceiving. I'm here in the studio with Dr. John Fratarelli, who's been doing this for over over 20 years now. And we're talking about what are some of the treatment options? What can couples do? And how does the whole process take place? You can join our conversation at 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, Dr. John, we were talking a little bit about what are some of the options that people have, and we talked a little bit about ethical considerations, if there are any, of saving embryos for later. And really, because they cannot survive on their own, there may not be an ethical issue because they are cells, and cells are things that, you know, without any other assistance, they wouldn't be able to survive. But let's talk a little bit about long-term consequences of hormonal treatment from infertility. So you've been not, well, you've been doing it for 20 years and science has been doing this for about 30 years, 35 years or so. Are there any issues? Have they found any? I'm sure they've looked. Well, I guess, you know, the the first thing to say is that, you know, back in 1996, there was a New England Journal of Medicine article which touted that long use of clomiphene uh, citrate therapy or Clomid, which a lot of patients will take, uh, put patients at risk for ovarian cancer. That was uh, noted in just a few patients. Subsequent to that, that study was looked at, and multiple other studies uh, were evaluating that same um, data. And what they found was that it wasn't really the Clomid. It was really the patients themselves that had fertility. So they weren't looking at a, a normal control to that subset. So what they found was that the longer somebody has fertility problems, that does put them at a higher risk for ovarian cancer, but that doesn't necessarily relate to them getting treatment or not. Um, For IVF, uh, you know, we've been doing IVF now for over 30 years, almost 35 years now. We haven't found any increased risk of any type of cancer or adverse outcome in our patients taking the medications or undergoing the procedure. So they seem to be very safe. Um, I think as we were talking earlier, we have no data on patients once they get to the age of 80 and 90. Uh, But definitely we do have uh, 35 years of data so far with over 5 million babies being born from IVF uh, since then. And so the safety factor, you you mentioned a lot of the people who come to see you ask this question, is it safe? And the safety factor really is there. Correct. And, you know, it's not only, you know, it's something I would recommend for my, for my you know, family. You know, I, I have three babies from IVF. I have, I have uh, two twin boys and a, and a baby girl from IVF. So it's something that, you know, I would not allow my wife or put my, put my family through if I didn't think it was safe. Well, there you go, personal testimony. Now, we've got, a, we've got a caller on the line. We've got John from Waikiki. John, welcome to The Body Show. Yes, hi. My question is, are there many cases where a male through uh, some kind of defective semen simply cannot produce children? He's certainly capable of intercourse, but um, in, a, in a permanent way just cannot produce children. Is that a very common uh, uh, case? It's an excellent question, John. It's, it's not a very common problem. Uh, male sperm problems are common, however. Yes. 
most of the time, though, um, depending on the severity of the sperm problem, we can overcome most male issues. For for instance, you know, once we do in vitro fertilization or IVF, you really just need one sperm for every egg because you you can do a procedure called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you inject microscopically the sperm into the egg, and so most most men are able to father a child. Now, ICSI only came about in 1992, so prior to 92, it was very common that men with severe, severe sperm problems were unable to father children. Ah, I see, I see. Yes, because sometimes when you hear that you heard uh, a childless couple and then they just kind of maybe whisper, well, they were tested and it was him, not her, uh, and nothing could be done, you know. Um, but as you say, then when the in vitro fertilization, that, that was much improved. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. That's a great call. Thank you. It's a great question, John. I appreciate you bringing that up. Because you're right, sometimes, you know, there is an issue. And they often try and figure out which particular individual is the one who had the problem. And that becomes kind of difficult because it's not their fault. Or if it was, you know, at this point, they're a, they're a unit. So, you know, hopefully anybody out there who's having trouble can feel free to seek assistance from a fertility expert. Because there may be some things that can be done for both the man and and for the woman. So great question, though, John. I appreciate you calling in and asking. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. John Fratarelli, and we're talking about fertility. If you've had a question, we might just be able to help you. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, one of the questions that always comes up is insurance. And does insurance cover for some of these treatments? Does it cover just for IVF? Does it cover for artificial insemination? Does it cover for any of the other treatments that we've talked about? There is a Hawaii mandate that has to do with coverage for infertility. What exactly is that? Well, the Hawaii mandate is coverage for IVF specifically. Um, and you have to have a married couple. Um, and if it's a heterosexual couple, he has to be using his sperm, she has to be using her eggs, and then they have to meet certain criteria. Uh, as far as insurance covering other fertility treatments, it really varies from insurance to insurance. So one of the things that we do is when we see a patient for the very first time is we ask about their insurance, and then we research it and let them know what their insurance covers and what it doesn't. Um, but but you're correct in that if it's a Hawaii-based insurance, the mandate is that they have to cover IVF, at least one cycle of IVF. Does it often take more than one cycle to be successful? It depends. But yes, you know, a lot of times it will require up to two to three cycles for, for some patients. The younger the patient is, the higher the success rate. The older the patient is, the, the, the more likely they are to need subsequent cycles which, again, is why having frozen embryos, which we were talking about earlier, is actually a good thing for these patients because if they don't have success with that initial cycle, they can then do a frozen cycle and use the frozen embryos. Or if they do have success with their, f- fresh, with their first fresh cycle, in two, three, five years from now, they can come back and use their frozen embryos uh, as another attempt. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Jeremy from Kailua, another person hopefully with a... I mean, it sounds like all these questions have been really on target. Jeremy, what can we do for you? Hi there. Um, my question has to do with lifestyle. Um, as far as if, if, if you have a patient who has a low sperm count and, and making some sort of lifestyle changes, uh, say, such in their diet, um, or maybe they're smokers, stuff like that, changing them to more of like a plant-based diet, like Kaiser is starting to push, um, 
is there data that shows any kind of uh, improvements through doing that? Improvements in what in particular? Improvements in fertility rates? Uh, sure. It, improvements in just the uh, overall male's uh, sperm count from, from maybe uh, one study that was done on him prior to a lifestyle change. Interesting question, because, you know, these days, everybody, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, everybody's pushing a plant-based diet. We seem to think that medically it's good for you, but specifically for sperm count. That's an interesting question. Dr. Fratarelli? So, you know, I think that having an appropriate diet exercise is great for everyone's health. The problem is, for fertility, it doesn't seem to have that much of an effect. Um, the healthiest patient doesn't necessarily mean that she's the most fertile or he's the most fertile. For for men and for women, we do find that there are some lifestyle factors that, that do play a role. For instance, too much caffeine intake, too much alcohol intake, too, um, too much taking drugs that you shouldn't be taking. Um, those are things that definitely patients should be aware of. And, and, and using things in moderation, alcohol in moderation, usually has very little effect on, uh, on sperm or on eggs and ovulation for women. Also, um, caffeine has very, uh, in moderation, has little impact. The other thing, the other important thing to think about is smoking. Smoking definitely has an effect on both, for both men and for women. Um, and it seems to be just even just a little bit of smoking has an effect. So that's one thing that, that for my patients, if they're smoking, I tell them to stop. All right, Jeremy. Doesn't sound like okay. the plants are going to help, but it's good for the rest of your body. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling in today. It was an, it's a good question, you know, because a lot of times people wonder, would any lifestyle change? If they've found that they have a problem, could a lifestyle change help them? And yay to the lifestyle change for the rest of their health, maybe not necessarily affecting fertility issues. We had another caller. We've got Alexis from the North Shore. Alexis, Hi. welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Thank you. What can we do I for you? I have a question. You can hear me. Oh, we can hear you great. Okay, I had a question about for Dr. Fratarelli, um, how he feels about dealing with patients that maybe aren't as successful when it comes to either egg retrieval or if they've failed multiple in vitro um, attempts. And if there's a component of that or if he has any advice, would he ever just like tell somebody to just go home and try to have sex because that's the best, excuse me, or try to have intercourse because that would be their best chance of being fertile or what his approach would be if somebody has had some more emotional issues afterwards. After IVF? Yes, after lacking, not having successful attempts or maybe the egg retrieval didn't go so well. It's a good question, Alexis. You know, it sounds like you're familiar with some of the procedures. And, hey, what do you do if the procedures aren't working? Is there ever a point where you say, okay, we've done everything we could, there's not much more? Or does that where is that where some of the other things that you mentioned earlier, where some of the couples who have extra embryos may be donating, is that a situation where that may come into play? Yeah. So, you know, after someone has an unsuccessful cycle, we always bring them back in a few weeks or even a month later and sit down and talk about the cycle. And we go over it in great detail, what the eggs look like if they did an IVF cycle, how the egg retrieval went, how their embryo development went, how many embryos they had, how, many, how their transfer went. We really go through the, the – we really pick apart the cycle and see, you know, was there something that we can, that we can look at that might be – 
able to be improved upon? Um, or are there changes that need to be made? A lot of times it's just the fact that the eggs and the embryos and the sperm just probably are, are going to have trouble making a baby in the future. And if that's the case, then we are very honest with the patient and we let them know that. We, we try to give them um, adjusted percentages for, for what their success rate may be and talk to them about other options to include you know, trying again with whatever percentage we, we decide is appropriate for her or them, um, using donor eggs, using donor embryos, um, or even adoption. So there are some other options. Correct. Interesting. But you haven't addressed the emotional component of what a woman goes through. And, you know, I, I actually didn't experience that with you. But thank you for um, addressing that. Well, it's a good question, Alexis. And thanks for thanks for bringing that to light. You know, Dr. Frederelli, that is an interesting thing. I think a lot of women, there must be when, you know, I, I look at it this way. And maybe this is maybe this is naive of me. But when when I think about the emotional changes women go through during menopause, hormone levels being up, hormone levels being down, that's a fairly tumultuous time for women. When they are doing something to address their hormones, whether it be with some type of hormonal treatment to improve ovulation or whatever the case may be, there has to be emotional consequences to that. Is there a component of that that – is there a way to help them with that? I mean – I'm sure that women who have undergone IVF and have not been successful have a whole emotional reaction to that. How do we address that part of it? Well, that's difficult um, because the emotional part is oftentimes experienced at home, uh, not in the office. Uh, we do have a lot of patients who will ask us right up front before we even start, you know, how are these hormones going to affect me? And the honest, honest answer is, is I don't know. Because the reality is most patients, the hormones have little effect as far as causing emotional changes. But there are some patients that will have some significant hormonal changes um, that affect them and affect their lives and maybe their loved ones. Um, we try to give them contacts in our office. You know, all of our, especially our IVF patients, have a direct contact to their IVF nurse. So they have a nursing support that they can contact by phone or by email should they need any help. So that, you know, certainly I think there are some, some other issues emotionally. And it sounds like because you're, you've got decades of experience, there is a way to help out those couples that are not as successful. Okay. Well, you know, we were about to branch into outer islands. Or I'm sorry, neighbor islands. And it just so happens Lucy from Hilo is calling us. So before we mention that you go to Hilo and Maui, let's talk, about, let's talk with Lucy from Hilo. Lucy, you, you beat me to it. What can we do for you today? Hi there. Um, what I was wondering is uh, if you're a woman that's had irregular periods for most of your life, meaning you don't menstruate every month, maybe it's every three or four months, um, would that mean that you actually have still more eggs left in your body? I'm 34 and just starting hormonal treatment to get pregnant, so that's why I'm asking. Would I actually have more eggs than the average 34-year-old, or do they die off even if you don't menstruate? That's a really good question because, sure, you think, you know, if every month you're supposed to have an egg, that's 12, and if you only have periods like three or four times, hey, do you get to keep the extra nine? You know, I mean, hey, is, that, is there some kind of a bargain? But in the grand scheme of things, does that happen, or is the egg count that we're talking about in the hundreds of thousands, so the extra three or four isn't really going to make a clinical difference? 
So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, women were born with all the eggs they're ever going to have. You were and, depressing me earlier, <laughs> but okay, keep going. And, and actually before, you know, by, going through, by the time they go through puberty, they've lost 90% of their eggs. And each month, there's a certain percentage of eggs that are programmed just to die off. And so just because you're having irregular menstrual cycles doesn't mean that you're not losing those eggs each month. You may not be ovulating the egg and able to use the egg for pregnancy, but you're still losing those eggs. Those eggs are still undergoing atresia uh, and, or dying off. When we do a fertility procedures using medication to get more than one egg, and, and again, I go back to IVF because with IVF, we get more eggs than any other, anything else that we would do. We're not able to use or get any more eggs from your ovary than your ovary is already getting rid of that month. So with IVF, basically what we're doing is salvaging the eggs that you would normally just be that would normally just be dying off that month. Uh, so and you know, more so, than one egg can die off at a time, or I thought it was one a month. You lose, so you so lose it's it's one a month that you would normally ovulate if you're ovulating, but it's a cohort of eggs that starts developing each month one of which, if somebody's ovulatory, becomes dominant and ovulates. If one doesn't become dominant and ovulate, then that whole cohort dies off. Oh, so I'm actually probably losing even more. No, you're not losing any more. You you lose the same whether you're ovulating or not. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for that answer. You're welcome. It's a great question, Lucy, and I appreciate you calling in from Hilo. Speaking of, when we think about neighbor islands, do they have the same opportunities? Now, you go to Maui and you go to Hilo. The other, there are just a certain number of fertility experts here in the islands. Are there, is there access to some of these services in our neighbor islands? I go to Maui and Hilo once a month, sometimes twice a month to see patients. I'm not aware of anyone else going to the other islands. Um, so we have a lot of patients who travel over to see us. My clinics when I'm over there are completely booked. Uh, and so we try to offer consultation services, ultrasounds. Uh, we can't really do many procedures over there. We can't offer uh, much in the way of infertility services on, to, on the neighbor islands. Most of the neighbor island patients have to travel to us. So there is some opportunities, but Correct. sometimes they do have to fly to Oahu to be able to do some of the procedure kind of things. Correct. All right. Well, you know, it seems like we are learning a lot, and we've got another caller on the line. But first, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. John Fratarelli. We are talking about infertility. It's a problem that is probably more widespread than people know about. And certainly, there are a lot of options, and there's so much more going on other than just in vitro fertilization. There's a whole bunch of other options that are out there. But if you're thinking of expanding your family, Better to think about it sooner rather than later. So when we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the other issues that need to be considered if someone's having some fertility issues. And we've still got time for more callers. You can join us at 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Early pledges mean the world to an eight-day pledge campaign. And if you pledge by March 27th, it can mean the world to you, too. Hawaii Public Radio is hosting the Beijing is Closer Than You Think sweepstakes, and anyone who contributes between now and March 27th will be automatically entered. One lucky person will receive round-trip travel for two from Hawaii to Beijing on Hawaiian Airlines. No contribution necessary to enter. See the complete rules at hawaiipublicradio.org slash Beijing. And thanks. Being in love with him brought me all the things in life I counted on. A sense of longing, 
something to turn over and over in my mind, and that clear, slightly manic vision you get with unrequited love. Finding love, this week on Selected Shorts, from PRI Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio talking with John Fraterelli. He is from the Fertility Institute of Hawaii, been practicing here for, boy, 20 years uh, on and off. And so here we are talking about something that affects a lot of folks. 10 to 15 percent of all couples have some troubles conceiving and want to know if there's something they can do now to help promote expanding their family. Before the break, we were talking with Lucy from Hilo, finding out that all women go through a natural decline in the amount of eggs that they have available, and certainly there's not much you can do to stop that process. We've got another caller on the line. We've got Matt from Kaimuki. Matt, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling us. What can we do for you? Uh, I had a question about the viability of of if you're going to do one of these procedures, uh, IVF or IUI, what? Uh, I, I know that there's a point where you, where the guy provides his part of the equation, and uh, I was just curious. You know, I, I know that there's sort of a window that can range anywhere from two to four days that you're kind of waiting to do that. Sorry for the weird language, but I was curious if there, there's a, any research that suggests that there's a difference between how long you that you wait before um, before providing the sperm for one of those procedures. I'm, I'm trying to understand your question a little bit, Matt. When you say how long you wait, do you mean if you donate the sperm for the procedure and it's the procedure's not for three or four days, is there a difference versus if you provide it closer to when the procedure's being done? Uh, that's close, but it's more um, how long the optimal amount of time that you kind of uh, uh, save the sperm in your own. Gotcha. I understand what you're saying. Gotcha. And Dr. John is shaking his head like he understands what you're saying too. So uh, tell me, what's the answer to the Matt's question? How long should he abstain before providing a source of sperm for a procedure? So typically we get the best sperm specimens after abstinence of two to five days. So that's typically the the recommendation for, for most men. For when we're, they're undergoing treatment, usually, you know, the the number of days is is two days. When we're actually going to test the sperm and do a semen analysis, we'll tell them up to five days. And the reason for that is because if you, if you abstain for longer than five days, then you start de- having a decrease in motility uh, of sperm because it runs out of its food source. And if you abstain for less than two days, you see a decrease in number of sperm or concentration. So two to five days seems to be the, the magic number. Okay. May I ask a follow-up question? Sure, Matt. If I were on one side of that spectrum, either the two or the five, what would be the, what would, which would be the, the side that you would err on? I would definitely not wait longer than five days. Okay. All right, All right Matt. For, great thank question. Thank you very much for, your question, for answering the question. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for calling in. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You can join us today. I'm here with Fertility Institute of Hawaii, Dr. John Fratarelli, and you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, when we talk about fertility issues, is there an overall percentage of success that you have with with couples 
based on what their what their fertility concerns may be. Let's talk about IVF, for example. There are certain certain percentages of success. What are those percentages? I know that they're somewhat age based, but in general, if you are under thirty five, over thirty five, over forty, what kind of percentages are we talking about? Well, if you're doing IVF, in vitro fertilization, and you're under 35, the success rates are generally above 50%. Um, If you're between 35 and 40, they're going to be a little bit lower, probably in the 40% range. And then once you get above 40, uh, what I tell my patients is that, you know, if if at age 40, your pregnancy rate is 40%, for, for instance, every year that goes by, you cut your pregnancy rate in half. So at the age of 41, it's 20. At the age of 43, it's, it's 10. At the age of 45 or 44, it's 5% or less. So really, if you're a woman who's dealing with these issues and you're getting to the 40, 42, 43 age group, you know, time to get it checked out. Correct. You really don't have time to wait. Correct. All right. We've got a call from Lisa from Waimanalo. Lisa, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you so much. I am calling to say a couple of quick things and then to ask a question. Great. Uh, First, I wanted to say thank you so much for having this topic. I think that uh, frequently it's in hushed voices and um, a lot of of laughter and uncomfortability, so I really appreciate you guys talking about this so transparently. Um, Having been a patient of um, the Kelly Institute of Hawaii, I wanted to share three recommendations um, for um, folks who may be looking for fertility treatments is I can't say strongly enough to go to a specialist. We wasted time and money um, going to someone who was very good-hearted and very much wanted us to be successful, but it wasn't the best place for us to be. And um, second is to get support from people that you trust and um, who will love you unconditionally on the journey. And third is to stay positive and hopeful. Um, Our son is a testament to that, and we are always very grateful to Dr. Federelli and his staff for making that dream possible. My question is, um, could you guys please discuss the assessment and treatment options for same-sex couples who may be undergoing fertility treatments? Great question, Lisa, and congratulations because you do have a son and you were successful in seeking treatment and in having your having your child, really. So congratulations. And I'm glad you mentioned the people in support because, you know, a lot of people might feel like not being able to have children is a failure in some way, and yet... That certainly is not the case, and there are plenty of opportunities to make a difference in the lives of children, and they don't necessarily have to just be your own. So I'm glad you mentioned that supportive aspect because, you know, even earlier we had a caller that was concerned about the emotional aspect of undergoing treatments, and there's certainly a lot to that, and having the supportive environment makes a world of difference. So I'm glad you brought that up. Now, Dr. Fratarelli, what about same-sex couples? They do have slightly different options as far as providing people who can either donate sperm or donate eggs. Is there a difference? Are there, are there treatment options available for them as well? There are treatment options available. Uh, the evaluation ends up being fairly similar because for a female, it's going to be the, the same evaluation, whether it's a heterosexual couple or a same-sex couple, depending on what treatment they're, they're really undergoing. But, you know, if they're going to do inseminations with donor sperm, you still want to make sure the fallopian tubes are open. You still want to make sure that their hormone levels are normal. You still want to treat them in the same way. 
Um, if they're doing IVF, then you still want to, again, you want, want to und- you want to do the same evaluation to make sure their uterine cavity is normal prior to putting embryos into the uterus. You also want to make sure that you're getting a good sperm source for, for those couples um, and that they're going to an accredited sperm bank uh, for that. Uh, for same-sex male couples, um, it's the same thing. You, you want to make sure, you want to evaluate their sperm, make sure everything is normal for them. And then for the, those couples, they really probably are looking at gestational carriers and IVF using donor eggs. So then it's really just making sure that you do everything that the FDA requires that we do for uh, gestational carriers and for donor eggs and making sure they have the best carrier available and, and the best uh, donor egg source available. You mentioned the FDA because they're involved in some of the regulations? Correct. So any, any donor uh, tissue that we use, so donor sperm, donor eggs, the FDA has certain regulations that we have to abide by. Uh, and we get audited by the FDA uh, on a yearly basis or bi-yearly basis. Well, they'll just walk into our office and start looking at our charts to make sure that we're testing patients appropriately and, uh, doing all the, and, and have the right paperwork on all of our donors. Well, all right. So, Lisa, I hope that answers your question. It's still a possibility, and there's plenty of options that are available for same-sex couples or heterosexual couples. So, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you have your son, and happy to know that you had those recommendations. Specialist, supportive people, and stay positive. I think we all need to stay positive about a lot of things, and this in particular can be a really sensitive issue. So thanks for for listening, and I'm sure there's some other people out there who also kind of wonder what are the options for them as well. We've got another caller. We've got Jack from Kailua, Kona. Jack, welcome to The Body Show. Well, thanks for having me. I just wanted to add a little something to the gentleman that mentioned the plant-based diet. Okay. And that is the nutritional approach is that uh, I've read numerous case studies. There's a clinic in uh, Santa Rosa, California called True North, where people go and they just simply rest for a couple weeks. You know, that's kind of a strange thing to do in our hustle bustle society, but they go there and they just rest, and then they, and then they, uh, re- they put them on a plant-based diet, and more often than not, their fertility is restored and they're able to conceive. They so, just need to slow down. <laughs> it's a real interesting take, point, Jack. You're right. Yeah, and take a break. You know, and it'll allow the body to heal and repair itself and improve function. And, uh, you know, there's no treatments involved. There's nothing that's administered to the, to the uh, people that uh, they call them guests, house guests. And uh, they just rest and then uh, go on a, uh, a diet that's easier on the body, you know, a plant-based diet. <clears throat> it's amazing. It really is. But it works in most cases. I just wanted to share that with you and your, and your listeners. Sure. You know, and Jack, it's a real important point that you mentioned that maybe we are too stressed. And maybe that stress level leads us to choose not only things in our lifestyle that are not particularly helpful or effective for us, but also can affect a whole bunch of different things in your body. And I don't think we in medical science truly understand the effects of stress on the body. I mean, we study it a lot. You can check a whole bunch of things, blood tests, etc. But really, when it comes down to it, what does chronic stress do to your body? We think we know, but we're not 100% certain. There have been studies that have shown stress can cause an increase in heart attacks and strokes. Stress can cause an increase in, in stress hormones in your body, which can lead to other complications. Some of the stress hormones can even lead to elevated blood sugar, etc. So you'd have to think 
that additional stress in someone's life could also affect fertility. Dr. John, you're shaking your head like, oh, yeah, we know this. Yeah, it's very common that stress will have an effect uh, on men. And not a good effect. I correct. would think, let's just call it a negative effect in this situation. Correct, okay. uh, on men and on women. You know, we, we know that uh, you know, stress in the workplace, stress in our daily lives uh, has an effect on, on our relationships and the ability of a couple to have intercourse at the right time um, and the ability of sperm function. And, and for women especially, the ability of the, for them to ovulate. It affects their hormones and and throws their hormones kind of out of out of sync a little bit, which then c- affects their ability to ovulate appropriately, which can therefore lead to infertility issues. Correct. And so, you know, Jack, your your thought of going to a place to just stop being so stressed definitely true. It can really have a beneficial effect. You know, I'm wondering, are there any alternative? Treatments, you know, some people talk about acupuncture, other sorts of treatments. Do those things help, or is that really just working on the stress and reducing your stress, and therefore potentially improving your fertility? Is it the stress connection, or is there something else underlying that that could also be taking place? Well, we don't really know the true answer. I mean, there are a lot of studies looking at, for instance, acupuncture and fertility. Uh, some positive, some negative. Um, but, you know, th- there are a lot of my patients who do do acupuncture with their fertility treatments. Uh, we, don't, we don't dissuade them at all. Um, it definitely has a, a positive effect on their uh, decreasing their stress, um, and it might improve their fertility. We, the reality is, though, we just don't have that data at this point. And we may never. Right. You know, it's difficult because who's to know if that's going to be the reason or is some of their fertility treatments going to be the reason while they're now able, able to conceive. So certainly there are some some questions about that. But, hey, if it helps, it doesn't sound like it hurts. Does so not if it's hurt not going to hurt, then, hey, why not? You know, try a variety of different options. And it may just be the stress connection. It may be other connections as well. Now, you mentioned that people come from neighbor islands to see you, but sometimes you have people come internationally as well. Is that right? We do. We do. We have from where? Uh, well, we have patients from Japan, from China, from Korea, from New Zealand, from Australia, from Canada. Like everywhere. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, but we ha- we don't have many people from Europe, but but really, you know, for the the people that are uh, closer to us, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, we do have a lot of visitors coming to seek treatment. Do they have the same kind of issues that you see here in the local population? They do. Uh, Typically, though, they're coming to seek treatment that they can't get uh, in their country. Uh, There are some countries that have restrictions on the ability to use donor sperm or to use donor eggs um, or to do genetic testing on embryos. Uh, So they will come here for those procedures. And so when they come internationally, they do all their treatment and testing, and then they go back, if they are pregnant, to their home doctors and continue along their pregnancy route. Correct. And in, and in some cases, they will actually start their treatment in their home country in conjunction with us working with their, with their physician there. They'll start treatment. They'll come over here for a week or 10-day vacation, uh, get their, the rest of their treatment, and then return home. And so really the options are available even to those who live out of the country even. Correct. Do you ever see people coming here from the mainland? We do. Uh, we, see, we see some patients generally from the West Coast mainly. But, you know, we're a society now that's really Internet-based. So patients will get on the Internet if they're have, not having success with their local clinic and they'll find a clinic 
that's near a relative or somewhere they want to visit that has good success rates. Um, and they'll they'll come and visit us and stay with and stay with a relative and, and undergo treatment. Well, you know, good success rates and gorgeous weather. Although Correct. I hope it clears up a little bit uh, this week. Good luck to all those. Uh, great job to all those people who wound up doing the Great Aloha Run in the rain today. I'm hoping, you know, the rest of the mainland, some people on the East Coast are getting snow. We can't really complain about the weather too much. But, boy, if you had to come somewhere for fertility treatments, it's a nice place to visit. I'd put us right up there on the list. I agree. So if someone is struggling with fertility, what's the best thing that they could do? What would be their the best thing that they could do to address this? Step one. I think see a provider. Uh, and, and, wh- and whether that's their OBGYN, their primary care physician, uh, or just going to a fertility specialist. But seeing someone who can actually start the process for them. And get started on it sooner rather than later if they have questions. Correct. As I said before, if everything's working properly, then people get pregnant very easily and very quickly. So if it's been longer than six months, uh, you know, you probably need to start at least thinking about seeking help. Now, if people wanted to get more information, you said they searched the internet, how would they find you? They can go to www.fertilityinstituteofhawaii.com. Okay. That's the easiest way to find us. And there on the website, you have a whole bunch of different uh, pieces of information, things that people can look up, look about you, and also find out about your staff, find out about some of the treatments available, a whole bunch of information there. Correct. Correct. We, we try to put as much uh, web-based information for our patients as possible so that when they come in for their first evaluation, they, they, they're very knowledgeable. Or when they leave from us, they leave from our, their consult, they, they can go onto the website and they can look up what we've discussed and it, it'll, and it just really hits home for them a little bit better. Well, and it always sounds like it's a good idea to have take-home information or access to that for any medical condition. But this in particular, you go and you might be very stressed to hear about results and hear about what's happening. And certainly this is one way that you can refer later to getting information so that you can review what you've learned already. Correct. So step one, really, if you have a question, pick up the phone. See somebody. And somebody mentioned earlier, make sure that you see a specialist or see somebody who's going to help you along the process. Because if you don't and you think about it and then you wait a year or two, you mentioned that egg count is decreasing all the time. Right. You know, you know, for a 30-year-old to wait a year or even two years probably doesn't have much of a consequence. But a 36-year-old waiting two years and now is 38, she's really decreased her pregnancy success rate. So we've seen a consequence. Correct. Well, it's interesting because now it makes me think, you know, for those women who get pregnant in their teens and 20s, that's when the body was meant to. Maybe, maybe we should think more positively about that and support them a little bit more. Now, having the family support, that's another big issue. It is. It is. Um, and there are national support groups. Resolve is the biggest one national support group that we have. Um, there used to be a, a local chapter of Resolve here, um, but unfortunately there just wasn't enough support. It's, it's, it's driven by patients and, and patient participation, and, and it's not something that as providers we can uh, organize or really participate in. And it, it eventually just dissolved, unfortunately. But there are national support groups, and it's and a lot of web-based and online groups that are that are available for patients. 
All right. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Dr. John Fratarelli is the head of the Fertility Institute of Hawaii. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here at 5 on The Body Show. See you then. Mm-hmm.